Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Over the next 20 minutes, you're going to hear an important message directly from God's Word and have your faith and knowledge increased. All you have to do is listen. Now, here are your teachers. We Christians call Jesus our Lord. But what does that really mean? What does Jesus want us to do in order to be considered a good Christian? And how can we improve our chances of one day hearing Jesus say to us those wonderful words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Join us today as we seek the Bible answer to these questions. I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Balog. Let's listen now to the Word of God. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That was Mark chapter 8, verses 35 to 38. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. It's important to take out of the Bible what God put into it, rather than reading into the Bible what we wanted to say. The word space is an acronym that reminds us to consider the speaker, the letters SP, audience, the letter A, and context, the letter C, before attempting an E explanation. And when you put those letters together, we get the word space. The speaker is Christ Jesus. To the Jews, he was the promised Messiah, which means anointed one, which means king. The audience is, quote, the crowd together with his disciples verse 34. Andy, why is that noteworthy? Well, first of all, all Jews were saved nationally and under the law. This is important to remember because this was before the cross. And if you think back and you study your Old Testament Bible, you find that there was really two groups of people. You were either a Jew, whether it was a a local Jew, a true Jew, a Hebraic Jew, or you were a Jewish convert from another country, which was considered a Hellenistic Jew. So you were either Jewish and followed the proper faith, or you were a heathen and followed some other religion. So this was important for us to understand even today because the Jews themselves were kind of like back then what we would call Christians today. Now, the two groups here that we see are the crowds and the disciples, and they represent two different levels of believers. And again, that's very, very important to consider because We see that these people came out to listen to Jesus Christ. 
Obviously, it wasn't all of Israel, but the people who did come out, the general public or the crowd, were there because the Holy Spirit led them because they knew that there was something special about this man. And once listening to him, they accepted him as being the Messiah, the Savior. And then there was a group within that group, a smaller group, who were the disciples. They were the ones that were truly looking to be students of Jesus Christ and become his true follower and were looking to go to the next level. Yeah, and when we talk about um, justification and sanctification or spirit salvation and soul salvation or any of these distinctions that we uh, talk about for, you know, being saved by faith in Jesus Christ versus, you know, earning the kingdom and works, um, I think the crowd versus the disciples is a good sort of depiction of that. And and uh, and we should, when we're reading it today, we should remember that like the crowd, as you said, would just be people who believe and, and people who believe are are saved in that sense. Um, but the disciples were those who took the time, obviously, to be intimate with Jesus and to learn all the deeper truths. So there's that called out of the called sense uh, of of the word, where um, you know we, we can equate that to people today who are trying to gain the epinosis or higher knowledge of the kingdom. As for the context, it's right after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. That's verse 29, for which he was praised by Jesus followed by his attempt to stop Jesus from saying that he would be crucified and arise, that's verse 32, for which he was rebuked. So I just wanted to point that out. So he, you know, people often forget the second part, right? Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and he's praised for that. But then right after that, he says, you know, Jesus, you got to stop saying you're going to be crucified. And then Jesus immediately rebukes him. Yes. Get behind me, Satan, you know, so who could forget those words? But, you know, in his rebuke, in Jesus's rebuke, Jesus says to Peter in in verse 33, you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. And remember that point as we continue later on in this lesson. And, you know, now we're ready to get into an explanation. So, Jordan, let's break down this passage of Scripture again. Sure. Verse 34 says, this is Mark 8, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So I think this verse is uh, frequently misinterpreted because people forget the see or the context of this verse. It was spoken before our Lord was crucified, long before the cross was a symbol of the Christian religion. It was spoken when the cross was a very real thing. Um, You know, today it's more of a symbol and you wear it on necklaces, but back then it would have been fully understood as a method of torture and execution. You know, it would be the equivalent of saying, you must deny yourself, strap yourself into your electric chair and follow Jesus. And I think our friends over at gotquestions.org um, have some good things to say about this verse. Um, I'm going to quote a little bit from their website now. It says, many people interpret cross as some burden they must carry in their lives. Let's say a strained relationship, a thankless job, a physical illness. With some sort of self-pitying pride, they say, that's my cross that I have to carry. But such an interpretation is not what Jesus meant. In Jesus' day, the cross represented nothing but torturous death. Because the Romans forced convicted criminals to carry their own crosses to the place of crucifixion, bearing a cross meant carrying your own execution device while facing ridicule along the way to death. Therefore, take up your cross and follow me means being willing to die. In order to follow Jesus. This is called dying to self. It is a call to absolute surrender. End quote. Amen. I really like that. 
You know, additionally, one of the keys to understanding this verse is to understand the question Jesus was proposing to this technically safe audience, like I mentioned earlier, because the cross didn't come into play yet, but they were Jews, so they were on the right path. He was proposing a technically, you know, this question to, to the Jews who believed in him enough to come out and learn from him. And paraphrasing, Jesus asked them, do you wish to come after me? That's pretty much the gist of what what this verse was about. He was saying, do you wish to come after me? And the operating words here being come after me. Um, Now, I recommend, feel free to use the Greek study Bible, such as the Blue Letter Bible, to do your own studies of these words in the Greek, because that's what we do. And you'll find these words can translate as to go off and join one's party or a private group where that somebody already is. So again, those words, that little phrase, come after me, in the Greek is more clearly translated as to go off and join one's party or private group where that person already is. So the context of Jesus's question to these believers is from for them to understand what it would take to one day meet Jesus at his private wedding feast. You know, many of Jesus's parables speak of this. This is the place or or group that all Christians need to know about, and they must strive to be allowed to attend or be included in this group. Entry into this party or select group comes from the fruit of our labors as faithful believers. Now I'm going to move on to verse 35, Jordan, and it reads, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Question, is Jesus speaking literally here or figuratively? Yeah, it's a little confusing. And when you get into the Greek, as you were suggesting, you know, the word here for life is suche. That's how it's pronounced, but it's spelled like psyche. And uh, it's the same word that's translated soul in other parts of the Bible. So an alternate translation could easily be, whoever wishes to save his life will lose his soul. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save his soul. One way to understand this is that, you know, life is temporal and the soul is eternal. So this means sacrificing in the short term to gain in the long term. The problem is that the idea of losing one's soul leads some people to believe that you can lose your salvation. You can see how that would naturally follow. And losing your life to save your soul suggests salvation can be earned in some way through sacrifice. So we kind of have to clear that up, and let's keep reading to see why this is wrong. Verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So the question is, when Jesus is speaking of forfeiting one's soul, does he mean going to hell, Andy? Well, this is a key question here, so I'm going to give you the key answer. Jesus is talking here about the soul, not the spirit. That's the context of what's going on in verse 37. Many do not recognize or uh, there's a distinction between the spirit and the soul, and that's unfortunate. This is called bipartite theology, which states that Christians are a dichotomy of spirit, soul, and body. And the the prefix bi and di just mean two, and spirit and soul are viewed as interchangeable. But that's not the case, not according to Scripture. We are tripartite theologians, and we know that because that's what the Bible teaches, um, that the body is actually the, the... humanity, Christians are made up of a a trichotomy. It just means three parts. And that's soul, which is distinct from the spirit, 
which is also distinct from the body. So we're made up of soul and spirit and body. Yes, and, and did you know that the tripartite view is actually much older than the bipartite view, despite the fact that the bipartite view has kind of taken over and most people use soul and spirit interchangeably, tripartite theology was actually the dominant theology for the first three centuries of the church. And, and to help uh, people who are not familiar with this concept understand, we can distinguish spirit and soul like this. The spirit, which is a New Testament Greek word, pneuma, which means breath, you know, and, and that, that is like saying God breathed life into Adam, which is from Genesis. The soul is, again, that suke word, which looks like psychology, the psyche of psychology, and that's the mind or our consciousness. So the spirit is sort of like the divine spark, a piece of the, of the divine that's in us, unlike one would say in the animals. And our soul is who we are, our personality, our being. Yeah, I like the way you explain that, Jordan. That's um, good detail, good analogies. I'm going to also add and say that, you know, our spirit is saved from spiritual death when someone believes in Jesus Christ. That's considered justification. And it's important to note this cannot be earned or forfeited. Spiritual salvation cannot be earned or forfeited. Now, the soul which is the second part of our makeup, is continually being saved through confession and righteous living. That's considered sanctification. So we have justification, salvation of the spirit, sanctification, the continual salvation of the soul. And then for the third part, the reward for sanctified living is, is entrance into the kingdom, Jesus's millennial kingdom, which will include the glorification of the body. This can be forfeited. So justification, sanctification, glorification, three types of salvations for three equal parts of every man. So I have a question now, Jordan. Lose your life here to save your soul. Nothing in this life is worth forfeiting in exchange for your soul. What is Jesus trying to say in these verses? Well, let's turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew um, 6, for example. We can go to Matthew 6. begins in Matthew 5, but let's start in Matthew 6. In verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus speaking, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. So, so one way to help understand this is that Jesus is describing the futility of gaining in the world today instead of in the world to come because the things of the world pass away, and the things of, that we earn in heaven do not pass away. They're eternal. And then backing up to chapter 5, there's also a passage where Jesus says this. This is verse 29. Now, if your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into, the word there is Gehenna. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. So here we see that Jesus is explaining the importance of sacrificing whatever is necessary now to avoid losing out later. And actually, this kind of raises a question for me, Andy, that I could uh, perhaps ask you. How does this connect to the, to the Old Testament and the many stories written for our example about those who learned this lesson the hard way? Okay, so let me look at it like this. Cutting off a part of the body would kind of be like cutting out a fleshly desire from your life. You know, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, 
in the English translation, was just a garbage heap directly outside, walking distance outside the walls of the kingdom. And it, it is known to symbolize the suffering of loss, the, the loss of inheritance. For example, we think of Esau, Isaac's oldest son. He lost his inheritance to his brother, Jacob, because his stomach caused him to sin, right? He wanted that, that pot of stew, and he was willing to give up his birthright for it. You know, another example is Reuben. This was uh, Jacob's oldest son. He lost his inheritance to Joseph because we read that his loins caused him to sin. You know, for lack of a better word, he, he ended up sleeping with his father's concubine. So thus forfeiting your soul means forfeiting your inheritance because of the sins of the flesh. So the point here is be aware of what you're sacrificing. In the scriptures, it's written that what God has prepared for us is beyond anything we have ever seen, anything we have ever heard, or anything we could ever imagine. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, what God has waiting for those who love him. So if you think about it, wouldn't you trade the whole world away or even go as far as mutilating yourself if there was if somebody really had that kind of a problem? If that's whatever it takes to, to gain that reward, I mean, when we really have a vision and an understanding and sight and, and just the imagination of what God has prepared for those who love him and, and being a joint heir with him in his millennial kingdom, in my opinion, nothing that this world has to offer is worth trading in for, for my inheritance. Yeah, we even had this in our vernacular, and maybe it'll help people understand what Jesus was trying to say in the Sermon on the Mount. But you know, it's sort of like saying I would give my right arm for whatever, you know, fill in the blank. So that that's kind of where your thinking should go when you when you understand what the what the connotative point here was, what the analogy was. Like you, sh- you know, when you understand the glory of what's you know, again, things that you could not even imagine, you know. Um, luxuries and and love and everything beyond your wildest dreams. You, you know, we would say I'd give my right arm for that. So that's kind of that's kind of a, a good way to make it sort of modern. But back to Mark eight. You know, we're in verse thirty eight now. It says, "For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in." So a question that arises here is, why did Jesus say that generation was adulterous? And you, you know, did he mean like marital infidelity? Well, in the prophets, they often called Israel the adulteress or the unfaithful wife of God. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 16. We see it in Jeremiah chapter 2, chapter 3. In a sense, adultery is equated to idolatry. I mean, we look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 2, which reads, look at the shrines on every hilltop. Is there any place you have not been defiled by your adultery with other gods? So what does it mean not to be ashamed of Jesus and his words then? Well, let's read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 and see if we could find an answer in that. And it reads, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So it truly is the greatest gift of all to know we have been predestined by God to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, as our savior, who died to pay for our sins in full. And then, of course, was raised by his father to show his approval of that sacrifice. And all this 
without us having to lift a single finger in doing so, just believing with our heart. And the least we could do to express our gratitude is to confess with our mouths that Christ Jesus is our Lord. And you could read about that in Romans 10.9. And this also raises the question, Andy, what does it mean for Jesus or God not to be ashamed of us? Because it says that as well. And um, when I think about that question, I think of a verse, which is Hebrews eleven sixteen, which reads, but they, meaning the heroes of the hall of faith, were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Well, Jordan, you know this. We believe that the main theme of the book of Hebrews is the writer's strong effort to showcase and prove that believers should hope for a coming salvation that is including more than just everlasting life. That's right. This is a place of rest and joy, and it's typified even in the Old Testament as the land of milk and honey, aka the promised land of Canaan. And I'm sure many of us have read that. We see in Hebrews 12, 2, that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. Because of this particular joy that was set before him, his 1,000-year ruling and reigning on the earth, which we know as the kingdom of heaven. So to wrap up, let's return to Jesus' first statement in Mark 8, 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up a cross and follow Jesus in America today? Is it loss of social acceptance, facing shame or embarrassment, losing friends or family? Jordan, I think we know the answer to this, and it's obvious. It's all of these things and more. Each Christian has a different and unique cross to bear, and only we as individuals know exactly what that includes. Some people go as far as calling them our personal demons. I'm sure you've heard that. Others call them personal crutches, whatever they might be. God places them in our lives like he did the figurative thorn in Paul's side. Whichever way you want to categorize the difficulty of your cross, it is there, and God knows it. But thankfully, his word tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he only gives us as much as he knows we could handle, and with that, a way to safely escape from troubles. Remember, our Lord is testing each of us in his perfect way. He is checking to see if when separated, are we wheat or chaff? We all have our proverbial Achilles heel. So I tell you, never ever give up or feel that you're alone under the weight that you have to bear. Jesus teaches us again in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, that if we come to him for help, he will make our burden light. And the ribbon around this gift is the promise that he gave us in Hebrews 13, 5, that says that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Thank you, Jesus. That's 20 minutes, and that's our lesson. Before we go, don't forget, we want to hear from you. We welcome your questions and comments, even if you don't agree with us. Just give us a call and leave a message. Our number is 908-271-6717. If you ask a good question or make a good point, we may even put you on the show. Once again, our number is area code 908-271-6717. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or visit our website at 20mbs.org. That's the number 20, followed by the letters mbs.org. Until next time, we leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple. Our music was recorded by the Abundant Life Worship Center. Our sound editor is J.P. Eli. I'm Steve Zioli, and until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Reserved Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.